Welcome to Mommy Diary, the podcast. I'm your host, Angela Kim. I'm a creative, lifestyle blogger, and mom of four. This podcast is all about honest stories of motherhood and real conversations with real mothers just like you. Unlike my Instagram account, not everything will be beautiful. I promise to be vulnerable and share stories of all the struggles and the incredible moments we all share as women and mothers. So do me a favor and screenshot this episode, add it to your IG stories, then tag me at Mommy Diary. I'd love to feature you on my Insta stories. We're all in this together, mamas. Let's dive into the show. Welcome back to Mommy Diary, the podcast. Today, I have a very exciting guest. Her name is Amy Morin, and I actually discovered her book in the airplane or actually at the airport. Um, I was taking a flight up to Seattle to visit my parents. It was a very stressful time for me, and I forgot to pack a book because I had my baby with me, and I was browsing through the store, and I just heard a book called 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. It just was like screaming at me, like, read me, pick me up and read me. So I grabbed her book. I read it um, on the flight there and the flight back. And it's just so, it has so much valuable information that I reached. I actually found her, reached out to her. And normally my podcast guests are someone in my like community, but I just had to get her on the show. So here's Amy. Thank you so much for being on the show, Amy. So oh, thank you me. so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me and for accepting my request, this invitation to be on the show. I just felt that after reading your book, I felt like this is exactly what we need at this time, um, myself, as well as the listeners, because 2020 has just been a, a very, very difficult time for all of us in so many ways. And you talk about different ways in which we can be and remain mentally strong. So I thought I was going to ask you some questions and you can just kind of take us through how you began to gather the information, first of all, and how, you know, you came to write this amazing book to help us women. Sure. So I started my career as a therapist and thought I would just teach people about mental strength based on what I learned in college. And from that, I was mostly taught to build on people's strengths, tell them what they're doing well, and uh, tell them to keep doing that. But pretty quickly on in my career, I realized if I didn't point out people's weaknesses, I was doing them a disservice. Like if I went to a physical trainer and they said, run on the treadmill, that'd be helpful. But I'd also want them to tell me to quit eating so much junk food so that I could see some progress. And so I started studying, you know, the people who came into my office who bounced back from tragedy and people who stayed stuck. And I realized that uh, people who just didn't have certain bad habits did better than others. And I'm glad that I did that because about a year into my work, my mom passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And it was my first big loss in life. And I needed to know how do I deal with grief? And a lot of it had to do with giving up bad habits. And so I worked really hard on going through the grief process and trying to figure out how do you grieve in a healthy way. And I was a therapist, but knowing something and doing it can be two different things, but I worked really hard. And then on the three-year anniversary of the day that my mom died, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. Oh my goodness. And, I'm so sorry. That must have uh, been so hard. Thank I you. It was just surreal to find myself a 26-year-old widow. I didn't have my mom. And I think, oh. Now, what do I do? I've lost my two most important humans. And where do I go from here? And I mean, it was painful to say the least. And a lot of the work I did was about, again, just focusing on not having bad habits, like feeling sorry for myself. It took years to kind of rebuild my life and figure out what's next. And I had kind of come to the point of thinking, well, I'll just be single. I was fortunate that I got married and I found love once, but A few years later, I was fortunate enough to find love, not just once, but twice. And I got remarried and moved to a different house. I got a new job and I thought, okay, this is, you know, my fresh start in life. And right around then, though, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just remember thinking this isn't fair. Just as life is getting good now, it's taking this sharp left-hand turn. I have to lose another loved one. I didn't even know if I could handle 
any more grief. My heart had been broken for so long. And so I wrote a list of the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. And at the time, it was just a letter to myself of don't do these things right now. And somehow you'll get through this. And I published it online at some point because I thought if this is really helpful to me, maybe it will help someone else. And uh, put it on the internet. And before I knew it, within a matter of a few days, 50 million people read that article. And I landed my first book deal. And so that's how 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do came to be. And then when that book came out, so many people were asking me, now, how do we teach this to kids? So that led to my parenting book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And then you discovered book number three in the series, which is 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. And that book really came about because so many women were like, how do we be strong in, in today's world? And you know, a lot of the examples of mental toughness are elite athletes or Navy SEALs, and quite often those are men. And so I wanted to create a book specifically for women to say, okay, how can you still be a, a nurturing, loving human and still be yourself in today's world? What does strength look like when you are a female? And it's not just about acting like men, but it's about empowering ourselves. So that's how 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do came to be. Wow, what an amazing story. I can't even imagine what kind of just work you had to do for yourself going through three, experiencing three losses and the grief process. Like that's, I think losing your mom can be one of the deepest loss there is. I'm I'm fortunate that my mom is still alive, but my mom lost her mom and she actually never really had a mom growing up. So that grief stays with you for a long time. And I think it's something that just comes up over and over again as you move through life. So I envision that like this mental strength is something that you are constantly working on, right? It's not like a one-time fix and then you're better for the rest of your life. It's something that you just have to constantly remind yourself and work through. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's it exactly. Sometimes when life is going well, we think, oh, I'm so mentally strong. But life doesn't stay well. There's going to be challenges and hurdles and setbacks. And it's in those tough times that our true strength often gets revealed in figuring out, well, what are my personal struggles? And maybe you struggle with something completely different than than somebody else in your family. Or maybe for your 20s, you struggled with one thing, but in your 30s, you struggle with something completely different too. You're in a different phase of your life or something else emerges. So I think it's so important for all of us to be working on our mental strength all the time and to know that we all have the ability to build it. It's just like physical strength. If you want to get stronger, you do some exercises and we all have room for improvement. Yeah, that's such a great point. And just like exercise, it's like a muscle, right? That you have to kind of work on, but you know, it can be triggered again. Like you lose, you feel grief over one loss and then you feel like you're getting better. And a few years later, it can happen again. And all those feelings kind of come up again. And you have to face them again and work through them again. But I'm envisioning each time it does become a little easier with like these practices in place or like certain like strategies and methods that you've outlined in your book so well. Yeah, you know, for some of us, uh, there, you know, there's certain things that we do when we're anxious, maybe some bad habits that we reach for, whether it's too much food or we reach for alcohol. Yeah. Can you kind of go over some of those? Um, I know you use the word bad habits and I'm sure we all have them, you know, overeating, drinking wine. That's been my bad habit during quarantine. I've never drank this much wine at home by myself. And I, and I know that it's not good for me, but it's just one of those things that's really hard for me to control during this time. And I think a lot of moms, uh, women can relate, but I think moms, it's just very um, hard for us because we just don't have the mental space to be ourselves or to be alone. So can you go over some of those bad habits that you see in women specifically and how you teach them to, I guess, you know, get out of that, that cycle? Yeah. You know, when we talk about coping strategies, I think, especially during quarantine, I'm hearing from so many people who say just that I've never eaten so much or They'll say, just like you say, I'm, I'm reaching for wine and moms in particular uh, we're hearing from who are struggling with so much, whether their kids are home or they're just everybody's working from home and they don't have the same space that they normally do. But 
And then for a lot of people, their normal coping strategies were taken away. So for uh, maybe people who said, you know, I really like going to the gym, but you couldn't go to the gym during quarantine or you couldn't see your friends. And so that makes it extra tough. I feel like there's like no relief, you know, um, exactly. Like some people like going to the gym or, you know, having coffee with their friends or even like, you know, simple things like getting your hair done without feeling anxiety, you know, everything that we used to enjoy doing became like anxiety inducing activities during the pandemic. And that's been really hard for me as well as I think I hear that from a lot of women. You know, and right, the things that we took for granted last year at this time that are now so anxiety provoking. In fact, I work for Very Well Mind and we did a study on online therapy. And one of the most common reasons that people are seeking online therapy is because they're nervous about their kids going back to school. And you think that's something that we took for granted last year. Parents weren't concerned about their kids safety in the same way that we are now everything has changed and the things that we really didn't even have to think about we now have to think about and and who would have ever imagined that we'd be in this situation and so for a lot of people it is about thinking what are my current coping strategies and are they healthy and while there's nothing wrong with you know eating treating yourself to an extra cinnamon bun because you're stressed out Obviously, over time, that will catch up with you. For a lot of people that have been treating themselves a little too much during quarantine, they're now starting to feel some pretty serious effects from it. Yeah, and and you're so right. Like Even myself, I have a four-year-old son, and he's missing out his entire preschool experience. And I feel it's a very, it's a dilemma. I still haven't um, made up my decision, my mind about him, whether he should return to school or not. He was only in school for two weeks. And exactly like you said, we've never had to worry about this. It's, it's as if like, you know, we have enough things to worry about as women and as mothers, but now we have so much more on our plate that sometimes it really feels like I just want to explode. This is like my own personal feeling. And reading your book was so helpful because it helped to kind of recenter me. And a lot of the ideas I feel like I know, um, or I knew, but the fact that you like, outline it so well with examples. It just made it very approachable, like more bite-sized information that I can take in as like daily reminders. And it's not a book that I would just read once and put away. I feel like this is a book that I'll just have and just read over and over again as just a reminder to myself. I wanted to ask you, so what's the difference since you're a psychotherapist, what's the difference between mental strength and mental health? Ah, good question. Well, thank you for all that about my book. I'm thrilled that you liked it. A mental strength and mental health. So a lot of times people will say things like, well, my I have depression, so therefore I can't be mentally strong. But that's not true, that you can have a mental health problem and still have incredible mental strength. So I like to relate it back to physical strength. Maybe you go to the gym and you lift weights and you become physically strong. But that doesn't mean that you won't ever develop a physical health problem. You might still get high cholesterol. You might still get a a sprained ankle. You can still get lots of health issues, even if you're physically strong. Same can be said for mental strength. It's good for your mental health to become mentally strong, but it doesn't guarantee that you won't ever develop anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar, something like that. So it's just important to be aware of that, that a mental health issue isn't necessarily a sign of weakness. That's such an important distinction. I personally had uh, dealt with postpartum depression. I say I survived through that because it's like, unlike anything I've experienced before, because of that, I am kind of prone to depression and anxiety. Um, My mom, I think had it and it's genetic. And now I understand the nature of depression a lot better, but I do feel like I've become more mentally strong. So even though I have days where I feel a little depressed or anxious, like this week's been a little, I've been feeling more anxiety than last week, but I do feel like I have more um, mental strength to just manage, I guess, you know, manage my thoughts and um, my emotions a little better. So with that said, I, I mean, there's so many great things in your book, but can you give maybe like three tips for us to to remain mentally strong or to maintain sure. our mental strength? Absolutely. So if I had to pick a couple of them from the book, 
Uh, one of the things I talk about, there's a whole chapter on self-doubt. And I said that mentally strong women don't let self-doubt stop them from reaching their goals. So uh, one of my tips would be to just embrace a little bit of self-doubt. Uh, women in particular, we tend to think if I have self-doubt, it means I, it's a sign I shouldn't move forward. My self-doubt is telling me that I'm not confident enough. I'm not good enough. Maybe it's my gut instinct telling me I don't belong, so I shouldn't bother to try. But the truth is, when they do studies on athletes and successful people, they find that those with a little bit of self-doubt can actually do better as long as they embrace it. So just accept that self-doubt is real and that the people around you aren't as confident as maybe you think they are. Because we tend to look around and think, oh, everybody else has it together but me. But that's not true. And that everything you think isn't true either, that you tend to be way harder on yourself than you do other people. So just recognizing that self-doubt is a normal part of the process and you can challenge the thoughts that you have and you can test them. So when your brain says, don't try that or you're going to fail or you're not good enough to say challenge accepted and move forward. I love that. You know, I talk about doing things scared. I am kind of better. <laughs> I guess I'm more confident in that way. I'm better at doing things scared. Doesn't mean that I don't get scared. I get scared every day. Um, every time I, you know, publish a personal story, every time I record a podcast, I feel there's a sense of fear um, that it won't be perfect. It won't be right. But I've learned to just face it and not let that hinder me. And I think that's so important to just move forward anyway. I love the saying, just do it. Yeah. And, and like you said, everyone get scared, you know, at some point. And I think it's fair to say we all feel fear in whatever we do, but we do it anyway. Yes, I love that. I was so shocked. I think it was like a Beyonce documentary. You know, she looks like she owns the stage and she's so like, she was born to do this. And she said in um, a documentary that she still performs scared. And that really shocked me. This, you know, international like star that everyone calls a queen and she's been doing this for over 10 years and the fact that she's still performing scared that gave me courage right because she's definitely somebody that we would look at and think well she has it all together so she never experiences fear yeah she works it like she's so confident and I realized right. that is part of her performance Right. We tend to think everybody else can see our insecurities, but that nobody else has them. But the funny thing is, is people don't notice when we are struggling with confidence nearly as much as we think that they are. You know, when you were writing your book, were you scared? Oh, I was terrified. <laughs> How did, what did that look like? You know, I'm always really interested in that because, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a blogger and, and I began blogging by, you know, sharing my personal stories about depression and my special needs parenting journey. I had a full-blown panic attack and I never get this. It's very rare. I think that's like the one time I got it where my heart was beating fast. My hands were getting sweaty. I had physical like symptoms. Like what did your fear look like? I'm just very curious to know what fear looks like for other women. Yeah. You know, when I was writing my first book, so I got a book deal because I had a viral article. And a literary agent had called and said, you should write a book, but I never planned on writing a book. So I sat down to write this book and I was thinking, I have no idea how to write a book. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I was a therapist. So I was used to listening to people's problems, but now I also had to talk about my own. Mm. And, and so I just remember writing it and I was thinking, A, I don't know if anybody will read this. And then B, I don't know if I want anybody to read this because it was right. so different for me to come out. And of course, by then, a lot of people had read the article, but nobody, they had assumed I had written the article because I uh, had conquered all of those 13 things. They didn't know the backstory. The article that came out didn't say, no, I wrote the article because I struggled with all 13 things. And right. so in the book, I had to come clean. And my big fear was, will people still respect me as a therapist if I say, yeah, I have these problems? Or will people still think that I'm qualified to be a writer because I'm sort of an accidental author. I had all sorts of questions like that and, and staying up at night. And then I'm thinking I'm supposed to be literally writing the book on mental strength and I'm terrified. <laughs> right. No, that makes perfect sense. But again, did you follow your own advice about just remembering just to do things scared? 
Yeah, that was it exactly. It was just to remember, you know, again, what's the worst that could happen? Well, if nobody reads the book, then nobody will know my story. Well, if a lot of people read my book, maybe I'll help someone. And just had to kind of put it into perspective of, okay, because I thought, I don't know, this might ruin my therapy career. What if I can't go back to be a therapist? Because now I've got this book on the shelves that talks about my problems. I had a lot of fears, a lot of questions, a lot of anxieties about that. But it was a matter of knowing, well, this is important. Not everybody gets an opportunity to write a book. If you get a chance to write a book, do it. And even though it's scary, that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Just do it anyway. Right. Oh, wow. Like it's just, you sound like such a confident person. And you, even when I watched your TED talk, which you should check out, by the way, the, for those of you who are listening, I mean, you sound so confident, like you got this down, but were you scared? I mean, TED talk, that's one of those things that scares the heck out of me. I don't know if I could ever you do know, that. It's, it's funny to hear you say that I sounded confident. I was so terrified. In fact, you can hear my voice crack throughout the whole thing. It was pitch dark. I couldn't see the audience. So I just felt like I was speaking into a black hole. And then I knew there's that fear because you know it's going to go on the internet. And so I was just thinking, oh my goodness, if I mess this up, it's going to live on the internet forever as well. If I say something wrong or I say yes. something stupid... And so I was, I was so terrified. I don't move the entire time. My feet are completely planted in one place <laughs> because I was afraid I would trip and fall or something bad would happen. So I don't even move my feet. And instead I just, I had, you know, memorized my talk frontwards and backwards and I was trying to deliver it in a way that I wouldn't sound overly rehearsed. But mm -hmm. at the same time, my voice is cracking and I'm, stepped off the stage thinking, I hope nobody ever watches that because I didn't sound mentally strong. Cause in my head, I sounded like I was about to cry <laughs> the entire time. This goes back to your original point that, you know, we are our worst critic. Like we think we look scared, but others can't really tell, you know, just right. like Beyonce on stage, she looks so confident, but she, when she opened up and said, she does it scared. That was it for me. I, I thought if Beyonce is scared, I'm sure, you know, a lot of powerful, strong women, even, you know, I don't know, I can't think of, you know, examples, but I think it's something that a lot of women can relate to because we're very hard on ourselves. And this is like something that you write in your book, we tend to overthink, overanalyze and put a lot of pressure on ourselves compared to even men. I, I don't want to sound sexist, but I do feel like our society puts more pressure on women to be and appear perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I address in the book. And I try to find the science behind that as well. So it wasn't just a, a you know, generalization, but you know, you think of little girls from the time that they're little, we tend to say, you know, you, you look so cute, you're so pretty and put pressure on them to look good. And then, you know, as we grow older, I think that there's a certain uh, rules that we feel like we have to follow. There's pressure, there's gender norms. And, you know, we tend to praise girls for getting an A in school, whereas boys, we praise them for their hard work. So we're giving girls this subtle message that you're only as good as, you know, the perfect score that you get. So even if you worked really hard and you got a B plus, that's not as good as, as getting the A. So there are some really subtle ways that we do send that message and how as women, we tend to put a lot more pressure on ourselves. You know, I remember reading that section of your book and it was very interesting to me because I was also like my parents expected straight A's from me and anything below that was considered just not good enough. And I don't think, I mean, my parents were just normal parents. They were loving people, but for some reason I internalized this message that it wasn't good enough. Like I had to overperform to be worthy. And can you talk to us about that short part of your chapter where um, I think you've actually done a study or you found that boys and women, girls are treated differently, even in the classroom? Yeah, there's so many ways uh, that boys and girls are treated differently. And I guess the study, I don't think this is the one that you're referring to, but the one that really made me want to write the women's book was uh, the one about when we ask five-year-old kids who to point to somebody who's brilliant. And all the five-year-olds tend to point to somebody of the same sex when they look at a picture. The little girls point to a little to a woman, the little boys point to a man. The one we ask them at age seven point to somebody who's brilliant. All the little girls start pointing to men, just like all the little boys do. And you think, well, what happens between the ages of five and seven? Well, 
we go to school. And what do we teach little girls? We show them historians, uh, historical figures. We talk about astronauts and scientists. And almost all of them are men. And so we start just from a young age with giving them a fairly subtle uh, difference when it comes to how what you're capable of, I guess. And then in terms of behavior, we teachers tend to be a lot more forgiving of boys. We think that they're just sort of more active. And we tend to think that girls should sit quietly. And so the way that we praise them, and then certainly for their for the way that we praise them for their um, accomplishments. Again, we tend to praise boys for for their effort and we praise girls for their accomplishments. So there's all those little things piled together, I think just does put a lot more pressure on, on women to be perfect and to feel like they have to carry a lot of weight. That is so eye-opening. I have three daughters and a boy and sometimes I have to analyze like my own behavior and attitude towards my children, because even though I don't believe in like gender discrimination. I find myself using those words more. Like for example, my son, I'll say, Hey, drink this. It's going to make you strong. It's going to make your bones strong and healthy for my daughters. It's more like, Oh, that's so pretty. I love your artwork. It's, you know, I don't, I don't remember ever praising my daughters for drinking milk. So their bones are stronger and that their arms are strong, you know, like I tend to do that and I have to, check myself and I have to revisit like why uh, even, you know, as someone who I'd like to believe, I'd like to think that I'm more informed and aware, but even I have those subtle gender biases and I have to constantly, you know, watch how I behave around my children because they're really listening and, you know, paying attention to all of those things. So can you now take us just give us some tips on how we parents can help our children build mental strength. And I think, is there, is there a way we can kind of undo those gender biases? Cause I think sometimes we do it unintentionally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, just being aware of them at first is, is definitely the first step and then to catch yourself. Cause it can be habit. And, you know, we want to tell little girls, Oh, you're so pretty and you're dressed and you know, you're beautiful. And, and then we don't focus on their their physical strength or, as you say, just like the strong bones comment or their hard work. So I think just recognizing that and then making sure that we're exposing them to lots of different kinds of people. So you want, if you've got daughters, you want to introduce them to a female engineer or uh, you want them to to meet different women who different do different things in life so that they can then say, oh, that women do that job too. That's pretty cool. They don't just think that it's, you know, men who are doing more of the stereotypical gender roles. And then in terms of what else you can do as a parent, I think it's one of the biggest things parents can do is not shield their kids from pain too much. Obviously, no parent wants to see their kids struggling. But on the other hand, it's so tempting sometimes to just jump in and and save them from experiencing sadness. And we tend to take responsibility for their emotions. So when they are sad, we cheer them up, but we don't teach them how to do that for themselves. Or when they're anxious, we just want to take that away from them. But we don't teach them how to manage their own anxiety. So I think it's so important for parents to just be really proactive with teaching kids emotional skills. How do you recognize how you're feeling? How do you give them tools so that you can guide them? Obviously, you don't want your kids to just you don't want to just expose them to things to toughen them up on purpose. Definitely not. But on the other hand, you want them to experience real life things and then you help guide them through it without taking away all that pain from them. That, that's amazing. That's such a great point. And you are so right because pain is part of life and we need to help them, guide them to navigate, I guess, give them tools to navigate that pain, but not completely shield them from it. Right. So what are some things like we can say when we see our children in pain? You know, I think it's about helping them just, first of all, label their feelings. That can go a long way. So if you say, you look really sad. I wonder if you're really worried. Are you really upset right now? Maybe you're mad. And just putting a name to their feelings can be really powerful. Kids like that. And there's a lot of research behind that, that we feel better once we feel like we're able to make a little more sense of how we're feeling. And for kids that aren't very verbal or aren't going to talk about their feelings, sometimes you can just use a feelings thermometer where on a scale of one to 10, they can say that they're a seven today or a three, or you might use one of those charts with the different faces on it so they can point to it. 
And then you just start to talk about how do you deal with that feeling? So while there's nothing wrong with being sad, because sad is can be a good emotion, uh, you just don't want to stay stuck in a sad mood to the point that you then don't go outside and play or you don't do anything fun all day. So you might just get really proactive with teaching them. When you feel sad, let's figure out what could help you. Maybe coloring a picture helps. Maybe going outside and, and running around the house for two minutes helps. But just get really proactive with helping kids know that there are ways to take responsibility for their feelings and that they have tools to regulate their emotions. But you got to be really hands-on with making those connections and teaching them. This is what can help you when you feel scared. This is what can help you when you calm down, when you feel angry. I love that. So we have to help them make connections, label their emotions and help them make connections um, and also give them tools, alternative tools to get them out of those. I don't want to use the word negative because those feelings are valid, but those painful or not so pleasant feelings. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I I think when it comes to like negative emotions, we think oh feelings are either positive or negative. But but no, it's okay for kids to be mad, and you want to explain to them it's fine to be mad. You just can't hit when you're mad. Right. It's about their behavior, or or it's okay to be sad, but you can't scream really loud in the grocery store just because you're sad. So this is what you do instead, and you just want to make sure that you're teaching them how do you deal with your sad feelings, how do you deal with your angry feelings in a socially appropriate way. I think that's something a lot of women struggle with is their negative emotions. We're great with positive emotions. We're Mm -hmm. happy. We can be kind and nurturing, you know, make the best daughters and friends and sisters. But I think this kind of goes back to seeing vulnerability as weakness. We want to be like strong and, you know, it's not just for men. You know, I think women are expected to kind of keep this happy face you know, sad girls or overly sensitive or emotional girls are not good. For some reason, I think I internalize that in my childhood. And we tend to just internalize our negative emotions. And for me, one of those emotions that I thought was bad was anger. So I had a lot of anger, you know, of course, when I was a child, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that my natural like state of being wasn't understood by the society, my parents, I kind of go into this in my other episodes, but like negative emotions like that anger or, you know, like sadness, very deep, extreme emotions. Like what's the best way for women to deal with those emotions without harming ourselves or those around us? Yeah, I agree that that can be, those feelings are uncomfortable. And sometimes we think that having those emotions is is a sign of weakness. So we mask them, we cover them up, we try to suppress them, we push them down. and and pretend that they don't exist. But in reality, you, you have to just know how to deal with them. You got to go through tough emotions rather than try to escape them. So I think, you know, to just a lot like we teach kids, you just need to acknowledge how am I feeling right now? Put a name to it, label it, and then figure out how do I cope? Am I the one reaching for the too many sweet treats? Am I reaching for the red wine because I'm stressed out? And then just get really proactive with experimenting. If this feeling isn't helpful to me right now, which there's an exercise in my kid book that a lot of parents have adopted about figuring out if your emotions are a friend or an enemy, because all feelings can be good or bad. So when you're anxious, but your anxiety is saying, hey, don't take that really big risk, maybe it's helpful. But when your anxiety is making it that you can't sleep at night because you're so worried about something that you can't control anyway, then it's not helpful. So when it's not helpful, then it's about figuring out, well, what are my coping strategies that I currently use and what can I try instead? So just like we talked about with kids about experimenting with different things, you experiment with different things. So you might find that going for a walk improves your mood, or you might find that when you're really angry, you're better off to to get some exercise outside and then call somebody and talk about something completely different. You just want to do different experiments to figure out what's helping you not necessarily escape your emotions, but what's reducing the intensity of them in a way that you can then deal with it. When you're so angry that you can't think straight, it's not a good idea to try to have a conversation with somebody. Right. And so if you figure out, you know, if I bring my anger down a little bit, then I can address the issue. Uh, That's when it becomes helpful. You know, it just occurred to me, I think, you know, certain emotions are more like associated with the gender, um, like stronger emotions, like anger is not really typically associated with girls, just like sadness or being heartbroken isn't really associated with boys. 
you know? So I think there's a lot of that too, where we end up like our feelings just get jumbled. Like they all just get mixed up inside. We don't really know how to process that. So you're saying for us to guide our children, just help our children maybe label each emotion, sadness or anger or loneliness or disappointment or, you know, like it could be heartbreak for a boy. And I wonder like how boys deal with their first heartbreak. Right. Because so often we're tempted to tell little boys don't cry. And, and we teach them from the time that they're fairly small, that it's not okay to, to be sad or to be upset. That's why they're so angry. We allow them to be angry because we think that that's, that's a more acceptable emotion or we tell boys don't be scared. And so a better message is it's okay to be scared. You just want to figure out how do you deal with your feelings when you're scared or it's okay to be sad. How do you deal with those emotions? Wow. There's, there's just so much to learn about emotions, not only in our children, but ourselves too. And I'm also, I always talk about how we mothers, like we have to be healthy and we need to be healed to be able to raise children who hopefully are healed when they're adults. You know, I think a lot of, I'm sure you see a lot of this where adults come in and a lot of their problems are issues that arises in their childhood, right? Definitely, definitely. You know, that our childhoods affect us so much. We learn so much about ourselves, other people, the world around us from little things. You know, when you're seven and somebody says, oh, you can't do that, it like affects your brain and it can stick there for the rest of your life. If you don't address those certain things that you learn, you kind of have to unlearn what worked for you when you were seven or the way that you viewed the world back then might not be accurate or you've outgrown them or you've matured. And so, but it's tough to do that. It's tough to unlearn some of the beliefs that you've widely held for so long. What's the best way to unlearn that? I I read, this is how you wrote it, changing channels of your brain. This was like one of your solutions to overthinking. And when I was in therapy, this is something that one of my therapists brought up was you kind of have to change. Like if you used to always go there, like let's say the destination is A, you got to channel that and, and go to B. And that really helped me. It kind of helped me to visualize like a different neural pathway, I guess you can say. Is there Are there tips, like strategies to changing those channels of your brain? Yeah. You know, one big thing is to just pay attention to the labels that you place on yourself or the labels somebody else gave you. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, I was really shy. And so I just grew up thinking I was a shy kid. And because of that, because plenty of adults told me I was shy. So I just basically fell into that role where I didn't talk that much. And so fast forward now to I'm an adult and I now give speeches in front of uh, lots and lots of people and I'm really no longer shy, but my sister came to visit me about a year ago and we needed something from the, from the wait staff at, at a table. It was really sunny out and she wanted to ask for an umbrella for me because I get sunburned really easily. And so she immediately asks the waiter because she still thinks I'm that shy kid who can't speak up for myself. <laughs> and I, I had to remind her, you know, if I wanted an umbrella, I could ask for one. She's like, oh, I just forget those things. And so I think it's just really important for us to be aware of the labels that we had as kids and how those still affect us and how certain people around us might still see us as that, whether you thought, you know, I'm bad at math or I'm not as smart, I'm not as good. Uh, it's tough to shed those. And even when we do shed them, not everybody else realizes that that we're no longer the same person. So I always encourage people to take time to recognize what kind of labels other people have placed on you, or maybe you've placed on yourself and try to find some examples of times when those things aren't true. Because if somebody says, you know, I'm not good at math, well, then just look for evidence. We'll think of every time we've ever made a mathematical error and think, yep, that's because I'm bad at math. But then we overlook all the times where maybe we've done a really good job. It's just our, once our brains gets convinced of that we fit a certain label, uh, it only then looks for evidence that proves it to be true. That's such a great point. I remember reading that in this book where you talk about how like sometimes our family members, and I totally agree with this, our family members may not know our true selves. Like they may not know parts of us. Like I had, there were parts of me that was shy, you know, and then they tell you you're shy. You kind of end up playing that role. Um, For some people, it could be like they play the role of uh, the family clown. So they're always making people laugh. I'm sure you see a lot of this in your therapy room. And like some kids, they're just like um, the black sheep or labeled as a black sheep. So they kind of play into that role. 
And I think as an adult, I look around and I see that adults play that role continuously. And it's really hard to break out of that. And I think the, was it the last episode I talked about how a lot of women, like for me, a lot of my older friends, I realized at a certain point, they saw the old me. They weren't looking at me as who I truly am, like the adult me. So some of my older friends fell away and I ended up meeting new friends who truly appreciated and respected me for who I am today. And I think same thing goes for family. Is that something that you um, find for yourself to be true? Definitely. And so sometimes I'll talk to people about, you know, you really want to know who your true self is. Think about how you are when you sit next to a stranger on a plane. If you were to have a conversation with a stranger on a plane and talk about yourself, what would you say? What kind of things about your life would you talk about? Because sometimes when we meet somebody who has no preconceived notions about us, we're much more likely to open up and we don't think that they have to know a certain side of us uh, if we meet them and it's not a, a business obligation or it's not somebody who knows your grandmother, then suddenly it's like you're free to talk about the things that are actually more about you. And uh, when I have people in my therapy office, sometimes we'll talk about how when they go back to uh, you know family for the holidays or when they get together with their old friends, they sort of revert back to their old selves. That's right. I remember reading that part. I was like, wow, this is such a great point. And I can see how like so many women just reading that short chapter, I'm sure we're just nodding our heads like, oh, yeah, I do that. And something that we don't even realize we're doing, you know, a lot of these, I think, are just kind of conditioned. Oh, this is another question that I had for you. And I don't want to forget this is why did you take the approach of things that mentally strong women don't do instead of do? Oh, I'm glad you asked that too. I guess because I feel like we already have such long to-do lists. And if I, and when I've been at the hardest points in my life, the last thing I wanted was a lengthy to-do list because I already felt overwhelmed. And I think so many of us already have certain good habits, things we're focused on, things we're trying to accomplish in life, but we probably have one or two bad habits that's counterproductive. Again, if we went back to a If I went to a physical trainer and they said, run on the treadmill for two hours every day, and I tried doing that, I'd be really frustrated if they didn't tell me that all those jelly donuts I was eating wasn't, uh, was holding me back from making any progress. I'd much rather give up the jelly donuts than continue to run longer. And I guess that's how I feel about a lot of our other habits in life. I'm a big fan of saying, let's work smarter and not just harder. When you get rid of your worst habit or two, all of the good habits in your life just become that much more effective. I love that. So it's like bringing a balance, right? And I totally agree that we have a long to-do list. It almost sounds like, and you go into more detail in your book too. So if you're listening and you're interested in hearing more, you should check out the book. But about the shoulds, all the shoulds, oh, I should do this. Oh, I need to do this. Like all the list of shoulds can really overwhelm us and lead to burnout. So in this way, you're saying we're reminding ourselves what not to do to kind of balance out, right? All the long, often overwhelming list of things that we have to do. Right. And sometimes it just feels easier to say, okay, if I just don't do this thing today, then I'll be okay. I love that. I I, I can see why your article went viral because your your ideas, it's not, I, I felt like it was such a fresh perspective. I think that's what I liked about it. Is that something that, is that a feedback you get often? It is. I think, you know, and thank you for saying that. I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, I really, really never thought about what not to do in my life, or I, I was working so hard at all these other good habits. I just never really thought, oh, if I get rid of these two things, then somehow I'll be okay. And a lot of people had said, I've, I've worked for years on trying to become better in all these self-improvement strategies, but yet clearly there was one or two things that just kept me stuck. Yeah, I think I'm guilty. I've read so many self-help books in my lifetime and you're right. Like it, it was helpful, but at times it just becomes too much. And I have to just kind of put it aside and I end up going back to my normal daily habits. And some of those habits tend to be bad, like, you know, too much wine or too much chocolate, you know, or not enough exercise. So I really appreciate your fr- fresh perspective to help women. And, you know, before we sign off, are there tips or strategies, just very easy things we can be doing um, right now in 2020. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And I think this is just a very difficult time for a lot of us. 
yeah, like a short summary of what we can be doing to still remain resilient and mentally strong. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things we can do is just take a few minutes every day and pause, reflect, and just take some deep breaths. You know, we need a few simple breathing exercises can go a long way towards calming your brain and your body. And we all deserve those little mental breaks. And another big one that's super easy, but really powerful is just, just practice gratitude. Mm-hmm. If we wrote down three things every day that we're grateful for, studies will show that you'll live longer, you have better relationships, you sleep better. The list could go on and on, but it's a really, I think, underutilized superpower. We talk a lot about gratitude, but, but to build it into your daily practice can make a huge difference in your mental strength. That's amazing. You didn't know this, but that's exactly how I came out of postpartum depression. And I was very depressed because my daughter, I mean, this was one of the reasons, but she has a, a special needs, a moderate to severe disability. And that's exactly how I got myself out of that dark, you know, those dark times was just practicing gratitude. And some days I would just literally say, thank you for my arms and my legs. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes some days were so hard that I couldn't think of anything else to be grateful for. So I would just say, thank you for my legs. You know, thank you for my fingers. so I can write. Thank you for my legs. that I can walk. You know, some people are in wheelchairs. And once I got in that habit of doing that now, it's definitely helped me so much where I do have days where I feel kind of depressed and under the weather, but it's never like I don't hit that rock bottom that I used to. And I don't think I'll ever go back there again. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that was helpful for you. And yeah, I think we've all had, most of us have probably had those moments in life where you think, I don't even have anything to be grateful for. But you know, sometimes it's just, I have clean air to breathe and and water to drink. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what seems hard for people when they're, when they think of gratitude, it's like, okay, well, what if I'm, you know, my marriage is failing, my mom just passed away and, you know, my husband's cheating on me or my children are acting out. It could be really bad situations where you really don't feel like you have anything to be grateful for, you know, but we always do, right? The fact that we're alive and that we're breathing. Yes. And when you start focusing on what you have, it just, life gets so much better. So would you say that's one of your, um, like secret to, you know, doing all that, that you're doing, writing three books and just staying mentally strong is daily gratitude. It is. I'm so grateful for so many things in my life, but you know, I've had those dark days too, where it was tough to find things to be grateful for, but it now I'm just, you know, makes me appreciate the good times, even all the much more now that I've had really tough times in my life. You know, uh, and before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about, you know, it's, it's hard to be strong for women, you know, especially nowadays, I think it's more common for men to be working outside of the home. A lot of women, especially mothers are working inside the home. I I think in September, there was a huge number of women who were quitting their jobs, like they had to because they just couldn't just deal with the pressure of home, not homeschooling, but you know, like homeschooling for some yes. And even just monitoring their children's virtual like distance learning lesson, you know, schedules. And it's just been a lot where I think women are experiencing burnout, having to, and it's usually, you know, not in all cases, the women that have to step away from their careers to be home with their children. And that was the case for me. You know, during times like this, like what can we do? What can we tell ourselves? You know, I think again, it just goes back to focusing on thinking about the choices that you have in life. And even though so many people think, oh, you know, this isn't what I imagined this year to look like, we still have, we still have choices. And just even the language that you use, if you tell your kids, this is awful, we're stuck at home, you're going to feel bad about it. But if you remind yourself, we're choosing to stay home because we want to help keep ourselves safe and we want to keep other people safe, then it just has a different ring to it. So I think just empowering yourself to use language like, okay, I'm in charge of how I think, feel, and behave today and how I spend my time, who I spend my time with. And to just really take charge of that, knowing that it's okay to take 15 minutes to have a great phone call with your friend if that's what you need today. And uh, just remind yourself that that you do have choices, options, and, and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. I love that. You know, after speaking to you for almost an hour, it sounds like a strong woman in your book, and I, I agree with this too, is a, a woman who who makes choices and who owns it. That's a good, a good way to summarize it. I think absolutely. 
And, you know, we tend to view women as more dependent on, you know, others, whether it's our children or our partners or, you know, um, women don't really typically have that, I guess, label as independent and like just owning her life. But is that what a strong woman looks like? And that can definitely be part of it. And, you know, whether a woman wants to be a stay-at-home mom, she wants to have a career, she wants to be single, she wants to have lots of kids or she doesn't. To know that it's all about knowing what your values are and then living according to those values. Right. And just making those choices for ourselves and owning it. I love that. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our talk. It was very illuminating. Um, I'm going to definitely have your book within reach so that I can just, you know, grab it and read a chapter or two. It's helped me so much and I know it can help my listeners. So if they want to read more about you, where can they find you? Uh, my website is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. And I've got link to my podcast and my books and my TEDx talk and lots of other stuff on mental strength. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and I wish you the best. Are you going to write another book? Do you have another book? Yeah, I do. I actually, I have a kid's book coming out in April called 13 Things Strong Kids Do. Really? Oh, I would love to buy that and give it to my children. I have four of them and I would love, I have to, you know, raise them to mentally strong in this really complex world. And that's key, I think right now to just healthy parenting. Yes, I think so too. So I'm excited to, for that to hit the shelves. As sort of I'm a, excited to read it and hand it over to my kids. Thank you so much for your time today, Amy. Thanks for having me. You are my sunlight. Thanks so much for listening to Mommy Diary, the podcast. If you can relate to any of my stories, my hope is that you leave this episode feeling a little less alone and a lot more inspired. For more parenting and lifestyle stories, head over to my blog, mommy-diary.com or join me on Instagram at mommydiary. If you're loving this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a five-star review. I love connecting with you, so send me a DM and let me know what you'd like to hear next. Talk to you next week.